Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. You're in for a serious dose of realness today. My special guest doesn't know how to be anything but the real deal, so buckle up. A combat veteran and commissioned officer in the U.S. Marines, he was personally decorated multiple times and achieved the rank of major. In 1996, deployed to Bosnia-Herzegovina, he led intelligence counterterrorism missions. After serving 12 years, he joined a high-tech startup, later acquired by Cisco, where we were fortunate to work together integrating acquisitions. He went on to earn his MBA at Wharton, found his own company, and his path eventually landed him at Salesforce. He led mergers and acquisitions integration, then served as the company's marketing chief operating officer, and is now executive vice president and COO of Salesforce.org, running the day-to-day of a billion-dollar business that is the company's social impact center to use technology for good and change the world. Beyond being a lover of sports and the outdoors, he is, most importantly, the biggest admirer of his wife of nearly 20 years and proud dad of their two teenage boys and three French bulldogs. I am humbled to welcome my friend, former colleague, and someone I admire a great deal, Sam Allen. Sam, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for having me. This is great. Um, I will throw out there that uh, for your for your listeners that not only were, were we working together, I actually worked for you, uh, and you were just uh, you were an amazing boss because you were always able to to say things very clearly. There was never any confusion about what what you wanted or what the outcome would be. So uh, just uh, important kudos for you. I appreciate it. You are one of the very, very bright spots of, um, of a blessed career. And I'm so glad we're crossing paths again here. So let me say it's very easy for people to be in awe of your career highlights, um, though that is hardly the full story of who you are and what's shaped you, your values, motivations, and life perspective. Um, most of us have not been on the front lines of combat. And I imagine those experiences deeply influence your thoughts and actions. Um, so I'm really grateful to you, Sam, for taking us through the high and low points of uh, your life journey. Yeah, happy to, happy to have the conversation. So you can start wherever you'd like to start, Sam. Sure. I mean, um, I don't want to bore everyone with my life story, but uh, you know, I think I was raised in the Midwest, um, in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, by a very, very blue collar family. My father was a truck driver. Um, and you know, I really early on in my life is when the work ethic was established in me. Uh, my father had to work very hard for everything he had and we didn't have much. And he really instilled that in my two brothers and I, I have an older brother whose career looks a lot like mine. I have a younger brother whose career looks absolutely nothing like mine. Um, but we all learned, you know, kind of at the, at the grist mill, uh, the value of work ethic. Um, when I was a teenager, my father uh, was an alcoholic. And, you know, like, unfortunately, many alcoholics, he just started circling the drain and things got, you know, from bad to worse. And by the time I was 16, I really had realized that I was kind of on my own. Um, and my older brother had left and joined the Air Force, and I knew that I needed to kind of take care of myself. 
and I was from a part of the world where, you know, a lot of my peers were, um, they were doing fine, but some of them were also on kind of a bad trajectory. And I, I just, you know, looked myself in the mirror one day and realized that um, I've got to kind of take, take power over my own, my own path. And that's when I started really thinking seriously about joining the military because I thought to myself, that's always, that's always a way out. Um, and when I turned 18, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And um, lucky enough for me, I scored well. When you join the military, they make you take this thing called the ASVAB, which I think stands for Armed Services Vocational Battery. And what it basically does is gives the military at least some semblance of what you should go do. Um, so if you're high intellect, they want to put you in a high intellect role um, and so forth. And I scored pretty high on that ASVAB test. And so what they offered me actually was an opportunity to go to college. And so while I was enlisted, uh, I went to college at the University of Missouri, um, basically put myself through school and spent my weekends in the Marine Corps, many of them, and my summers in the Marine Corps, but the other nine months of the year um, at the University of Missouri. Again, really learning about perseverance and how to put myself through and um, the value of, you know, owning your own destiny and not waiting for things to happen to you. And, you know, the Marine Corps obviously was very, very formative. And then, um, yeah, you know, I, I graduated, took, then took a commission as an officer in the Marine Corps. And I, I honestly thought that I would spend my career as a Marine and I would either, you know, retire or die. That's <laughs> kind of the mindset in the Marine Corps. Marine Corps is a very unique um, institution that's full of pretty nutty people. Um, anyway, so uh, that was, you know, kind of the mindset I had through my twenties. And then as I began to get closer to 30 and I realized that the life was even broader and there's so much more that I could go accomplish, I decided to leave the Marines after about, uh, 10 years, uh, and then, you know, came up to Silicon Valley and started my, my, uh, my work career. And the thing that, you know, I learned early on around work ethic was obviously imbued much more deeply in me as a U.S. Marine. Um, and what I also learned in the Marine Corps that I've used as a central leadership tenant my entire career has been lead by example. And in, in the military, especially in the Marine Corps, you are very much trained to never ask your people to do something you wouldn't do yourself. Um, and I've got plenty of stories of, of, of that, um, but I've kept that with me. And I think a large part of my success in my civilian career has been owed to the fact that I always am willing to do what I ask the people around me to do. Um, and I'm always there to give them the air cover that they need. So those are, those are kind of the two of the biggest lessons I've learned through, uh, through my history. Sam, when you're in the military and most of us haven't had that um, experience at all and not to take you into to dark places, but could you just help us with, you know, some of the depths of how, how deep do you have to dig for yourself, for others, to give us, you know, to the extent that it's even possible, um, what it's like. I mean, I, I know I read, and we'll talk about your operating manual in a bit, but, you know, you, you've, you know, slept in these trenches and, you know, now you have a bed that you sleep in and life is good. So, you know, I, I think it would be helpful for us to, um, to get some sense of that life. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly hard to impart. Um, and you kind of said it, you can't really, even if you watch every movie ever made about the military or combat until you're there and smell it and see it and feel it and understand it. Um, it's, you just can't get your head around it. Um, it is a, 
ultimate assault on the senses. Um, all, all your senses are just in overdrive, um, not only from what's happening to you and around you, but also just your, it's your survival instinct, you know, on steroids. And you've got to, but as a leader, you've got to keep your head. And all I can tell you is that when, when you're in a situation where, um, of high duress, where people are trying to, you know, kill you bluntly or worse, trying to kill your people, your Marines, um, you have to rely on your training and you've got to dig really deep onto a central reservoir of, um, you know, mission accomplishment. And that is so critical because the, the mission always takes precedence over the people. And that's, what's really hard for folks who've not served in the military to really get their head around. And you see that a lot actually in, in the public debates around um, whether or not the military should be on the, on the kind of leading edge of some of these, um, you know, some move, some social movements. And I understand the arguments on both sides, but what's hard for people to get their head around is that in, in the military, the, it's not the survival of the person that matters. It's the survival of the mission. And in the Marine Corps, especially you push your, your, uh, your troops and your Marines to the point where, you know, you're going to take casualties. Um, but that's fine. And that's, what it's fine because it's what we've all signed up for. And again, that's hard to get your, your head around that. Like you're going into a mission in combat, knowing that it's not a possibility or a probability, you know, someone's going to get hurt or potentially killed on that mission that day. And you all, you know, take it with the grain of salt that you have to um, rely on your training and rely on the people around you and, you know, move forward. So, um, there's a famous saying in the military and I don't know where it comes from. It's probably really old. And it says the best laid plans never survive the first bullet. And, you know, the minute you're on some sort of patrol or out doing something and the bullets start flying at you, everything that you've thought about doing kind of freezes up and you do have to really rely on your training and the people around you have to rely on their training. Um, and you have to just, you know, continue to move forward. And it's that deep kind of reservoir of perseverance that, that makes that happen. And that comes through a combination of how you just, how you're wired. I just, you know, I just believe that I believe people are wired certain ways um, because I was an effective um, leader in the military. Doesn't mean I'd be an effective something else. Right. Like I've, I've watched my wife, my wife, who's an elementary school teacher, teach second graders, that would scare the hell out of me. That's just not something I'm wired to do or that I could do, right? So everyone's wired a bit differently. But the military is the ultimate kind of example of you are born with it, yet it can also be taught. And that's why the training, especially in the military, especially in the Marine Corps, is so deeply intense because we know that you're going to find yourself in these situations of extreme duress where you have to rely on training because you go into what we call the lizard brain like your higher order thinking just disappears and you've got to be purely reactionary based on all that training um, with keeping that singular mission in mind. Um, and it's just, you know, it can be incredibly chaotic and noisy and smelly. And like I said, it's a complete assault on the senses. And when you see people around you go down, um, there's a, there's a process for that. And everyone's got a job and you have people that are trained to take care of wounded Marines, and that's their job. It's not your job to stop and take care of them. It's your job to make sure that the, the medical uh, personnel are there to do that. Um, and so just having that steadfastness mindset around mission accomplishment 
is, uh, is what makes it all work. I, I can't imagine since then that anything has appeared even sort of remotely challenging, but I could be wrong. Has anything in <laughs> business come close? Um, well, you know, I, I, I've given this kind of converse, this talk to people before internally um, and leadership development programs and things. And what I do tell people is, look, what I'm really talking about fundamentally here is perspective. And there's different levels of perspective. And you don't have to have been a combat veteran to have deep perspective. We've all, every single worst person has had challenges in his or her life. And, you know, when you've had those challenges, sometimes it's, it's easy to forget how tough life was at that point when you think about the obstacles you're facing in any given day. Um, it's just that the obstacles you face in the military are so extreme that it's hard to forget about them. And so, no, I've, I've not ever compl- uh, run into anything in my civilian you know, career that remotely resembles anything that I dealt with in the military. And that does give an amazing sense of perspective. And I, you know, I always, I'm always able to keep an incredibly calm demeanor because of that. Um, but, you know, look, everything has got an upside and a downside, and there is a downside to that. And I have certainly been accused in my career of not having enough quote unquote passion. Um, and I've been, or I've been accused of not giving a certain um, challenging situation the respect it deserves because I'm not running around with my hair on fire. And it, it almost looks like you're, you don't care, right? When in fact you care deeply. And so one thing I've had to learn and modify in my career um, is that although I will look at something as not impacting me or I have an inflappable, unflappable demeanor, um, I've got to vocalize you know, how important the certain, the given situation is so that people around me understand that they have a leader who's not um, ignoring the dire situation that they find themselves in. And I've had to learn that. And I had to learn that over a good 10 years. Like, it's not something that I just thought of, you know, it, 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 it was multiple situations in multiple different companies till it finally, the light finally did click on. And I realized that, hey, yeah, there's a great opportunity in perspective, but there's a downside to that too. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that and connecting the dots. And it is interesting how you know, it takes a decade. And I think for listeners to hear that this is part of the getting to know yourself for who you really are and then how to help other people know you. Um, and, and that isn't something that's a snap, snap. Um, Sam, when you decided to leave, because it sounded like you had been committed. And so what was it that like, and you know, did you read about the Valley or did you have other buddies who went there? I'm curious how you ended up leaving. Yeah. You know, so part of my, um, Part of my philosophy, uh, and this is also goes back to my, I always say go, I go native, right? And when you've been in the Marine Corps, you're a Marine till the day you die. And it doesn't matter how long you've been out. And in the Marine Corps, you're taught, you know, pick a direction and move. And so every career opportunity I've been presented with in my life, I don't spend more than literally, not certainly not more than a day or a few hours thinking about it. And so when I was in the Marine Corps and started thinking about what I wanted to do next, the way the Marine Corps works is, you, you do things in four-year stints, um, and so you're, you're committed. It's like a contract. You can't say, I'm going to spend uh, – yes, I'll take this new role, but maybe a year later I can leave. Like if you, When you take the next assignment, you're there for at least four years as an officer. And you also have the, the, you know, the, the opportunity to retire at 20 years. Well, if, at that point in my career, as of 10 years in, if I had decided to stay for an incremental four, what I was really signing up for was an incremental 10. Because at 14 years, you certainly wouldn't leave then when you're only six years away from retirement. Um, and so that's the kind of the thought process I had. 
This was in the late 90s, and I did have a lot of friends leaving the military. And many of them had the original mindset of me, which was, we're going to stay in the military forever. But if you go back to that time, you know, the world had changed greatly in the 10 years that I'd been in. When I, when I entered the Marine Corps, you had a massive, you know, still military buildup. The Soviet Union was still a very real threat. Um, and by the time I left, you know, the Soviet Union had crumbled. Cold War was over. Um, and there was a massive military drawdown. And I, yes, I certainly could have stayed, but I just felt like I had done my duty and that I owed myself something more to do. I also looked around and saw a lot of people's personal lives that weren't that great. Um, the toughest job we always say is being a, being a spouse in the military. And, um, you know, when you're in the military, that's your, that's your, that's your everything. Um, and your family is subordinated to the needs of the military. And at the time, I wasn't married or even seriously dating anybody, but I knew that I wanted to have a family. And I just also knew that I didn't want to subject them to that lifestyle. And so literally over a period of 24 hours, I came to all these conclusions and decided to leave. And then it was, okay, well, what do I do now? Um, and I literally was looking at jobs I, everywhere. I was looking at manufacturing supervisor jobs in the Midwest. I was looking at technology jobs in Silicon Valley. Uh, I was looking at, I was getting recruited by the FBI um, and actually the CIA, which I didn't want to go do, but um, those were options. And frankly, what really attracted me to Silicon Valley was it was so different to where, you know, where I'd come from, not only from the military, but also from the Midwest. Um, Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area is literally almost a universe away from, from Gladstone, Missouri, where I grew up. Um, and it's certainly very different than, than the military. Um, and it's, it's a dynamic place. I mean, Molly, you've been here. You spent a lot of your career here. It, it, it never, um, there's no stasis in Silicon Valley. Everything is constantly changing. Um, it just, and it felt like a really interesting place. On top of that, from a social perspective, I had just basically spent five years, you know, the previous five or six years in either the Mojave Desert or deployed and I just wanted to go somewhere where there were a lot of um, opportunities for, you know, a single guy in his third, you know, late twenties, early thirties. And it was also very green and cool here. Um, and having <laughs> spent five years in the desert, it was kind of fun to come someplace. So really it was all those things that, that rolled into one. And when I came here, I thought I would spend two or three years here and then move back to the Midwest. And that was 24 years ago. And, you know, I'm still here. So it's been, uh, it's been an amazing run. Um, uh, but it really was all about just finding an opportunity to do something different and then jumping on that opportunity. Yeah. That's so amazing. Your decision ability is spectacular. And so what, when you got day one in civilian life, could you recall some of like, Oh my God, this is like this. Was it shocking or was it? It was shocking in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I had done a combat deployment to Bosnia and I left there in November of 96 and I interviewed, was interviewing with companies in, November, December, 96. And on January 6, 1997, I started my new job. So I walked into the company that morning and um, they sat me down in a cubicle and I was wearing a tie, which was completely foreign to me, which is also, by the way, foreign in Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, they sat me in front of a computer and said, okay, uh, here's, you know, here's your, here's your workspace, get after it. <laughs> And everything about it was foreign to me, including the language. Like I, I didn't understand all the acronyms or what I was supposed to do. Um, I mean, I'd spent my time in the military um, and there's not a lot of skill set, hard skill sets that 
transfer, especially from the Marine Corps to the civilian world. The soft skills certainly transfer around things like leadership and communications, but um, it was uh, it was daunting to say the least. I think I sat there for about 20 minutes, just like staring at the wall of the cubicle. And um, a guy walked by who had helped recruit me and he had been in the Navy. He was a submarine officer in Navy. He looked at me and just started to laugh. And he goes, there's that thousand yard stare. And I'm like, I don't know what to do, man. He goes, all right. He goes, just just follow my lead, uh, do what I do, uh, and trust me, it's all going to be okay. Um, but it was it was hard. Like I, I I didn't know anything about anything, right? And again, I'm super dating myself, but this was uh, 1997, so email had been out for a while, but the, the internet was very nascent still. The style in which we worked was, you know, this was in a manufacturing facility uh, in Santa Clara. Uh, it was just all different. So it was. Uh, it was almost more scary than having to go out on a, a night patrol. Oh my gosh. I can just see you. Cause you're so, I don't know. You're just, you always appear to know exactly what you're doing. I mean, that's just kind of my sense of Sam. I mean, you have the whole answer, but you know how you're going to go about it. So for you to sit anywhere for 20 minutes, staring blankly is, is hilarious. Well, I was clueless and I was probably a little scary. Cause I had, you know, the, I had still had the high and tight haircut and the really weird tan that comes from wearing a helmet and then a hat and then no hat, you know, and people probably looked at me like, who's this weird dudes in this cube, just staring at the wall. Um, you know, and then of course, you know, what, just to take this a different tack, there's bias, right? I mean, this is one of the big battles we're all fighting collectively today or uh, in the, in the fight for equality is around bias and unconscious bias. And that's something that even after 24 years, I still fight. Um, even after all the success I've had in the civilian career, people will still introduce me sometimes as, hell, that's Sam. Yeah, he was in the military, as opposed to this is Sam with 25 years of 24 years of Silicon Valley tenure under his belt. Um, and so that was that was a bit challenging, too, because people would when I, in that first job when I was getting my feet under me, just a different tone, different demeanor, different way of speaking. It kind of freaked people out. And like, oh my gosh, here's this guy from the Marine Corps. And again, this is Silicon Valley, right? Um, pretty far field socially um, or culturally from the military. Um, and they would look at me and be like, oh my God, what's this guy going to do? You know, is he going to go around and yell at people? Is he going to kick people in the butt? I actually had someone ask me that question. Um, and I'm like, man, I, don't, I didn't do that when I was in the military. I'm not going to do it now. And so just fighting that bias is, uh, is challenging. Yeah. Yeah, we need, and I'm just so proud of you for where you are and then how you can, you know, I've always said you have to have the optics matter and you have to show how people lead differently, come from different backgrounds, can thrive. Um, so the, the Silicon Valley startup, the Cisco, just to fast forward there, the, the learnings through the different Valley companies and then Wharton, because I lost mm -hmm. track of it a little bit when you went to Wharton. So talk to me about how that came to be and what that was like for you. And I know you did a little teaching there and I can see you being spectacular in that role. Yeah. Teaching's a bit of a stretch, but um, I'll talk about that in a moment. So yeah, I was at, I was working, you know, with you at Cisco in amazing, um, just, we could do a whole hour on oh, the, we, we were buying three companies a month and <laughs> I've explained that to people and they're like, I'm sorry, what? I'm like, yeah, we're acquiring three companies a month. Uh, it was nuts. But a lot of fun traveling all over the world. Um, and, uh, and then the, the dot-com crash happened, right? And then next thing you know, I was kind of sitting around twiddling my thumbs. And I went to a different part of Cisco into an operating role. And it, it was good. But I found myself kind of, um, this, this, at this point, I had been out of the military for five years. Uh, and I found myself kind of wondering what I need to go do next. 
And what I realized was that I was kind of bumping up against a bit of a ceiling because I wasn't, um, I wasn't uh, uh, someone with deep product expertise and I wasn't an engineer. And so I was kind of in this weird zone where what do I go do next? What's my discipline of choice? And I decided I could either go to law school or business school as kind of a springboard into the next stage of my career. So I needed to do something to separate myself. And I just immediately threw law school out the window because um, I didn't want to spend, you know, that amount of time uh, in my 30s trying to get there. And so I decided to go to a business school program. And because I uh, couldn't afford to do it, um, you know, as a full-time student, I wanted to find a executive program, but I didn't want to be a, I didn't want it to be a kind of check the box executive program. It had to be an actual MBA, same course work, same course load as the full-time students just done on a different schedule. And there are a few of those that are available, University of Chicago, Wharton, Cal, um, you know, when you think about the top programs, Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of programs that do that, but I was, I, I really wanted to have a pedigree. I wanted to go to a top school. And I can explain why that was important to me in a moment. Um, and so, you know, I applied to, applied to s- several of those. Um, and it was interesting when I applied to Wharton, I got everything done. And then my GMAT score, which is the exam you take to get into business school, was solid. It was like an 88th or 89th percentile. But, you know, the Wharton people are like, you can't get into Wharton with that. So you need to go take it again. I ended up taking that damn test four times. Oh my God. And on the fourth time, uh, the funny thing was on the third time, all my scores went down. I'm like, okay, maybe that's a fait accompli. But anyway, on the fourth time, um, (laughs) I had a 660, which is like a 92nd, I don't know, percentile. And I'm not saying that to brag because even then the Wharton guy was rolling his eyes. I'm like, look, man, I can't, I'm not taking this test again. I said, I've done amazing work in the five years I've been a civilian. I'm a veteran, you know? Um, and if that's not good enough for you, then, then maybe it's not a good program for me. And um, ended up through that getting in. And I think that's mm-hmm. a testament to, I tell this to my kids, you know, don't take no lying down. Um, and if you think you've got value that people are not appreciating or understanding then explain it to them, don't get angry and don't get mad, but, you know, defend yourself. Um, and that was, a, that was a great example of that. And ended up getting in, you know, the program. And uh, absolutely loved it. It was an amazing two years. Uh, it's the exact same, again, um, uh, course load as the full-time students. It's just done every other weekend for three full days. Um, and uh, just had an amazing time. And when I, after I left, one of the things I realized when I was there, which isn't big surprising, is that there's a lot of theory in business school as with any educational program and not a lot of practicality. And what I found was I had a lot of my classmates coming up to me and asking me about how do you like actually run a business day to day? Cause at that time I was running the operations for our, at Cisco's routing division, which was, I think at the time, $6 billion in revenue. So it was a pretty big business that we were running. And it kind of hit me that, Oh my God, we're here. We are at this top 10 MBA program and people are leaving here and they still don't know how to <laughs> manage a business day to day. And so I pitched this idea to the, to the, um, the, the uh, campus here in San Francisco about having, you know, a, basically a boot camp. And um, a lot of it was trying to how to be a startup CEO too. Cause during Wharton, I started a company with two of my Wharton classmates and um, I would have same thing entrepreneurs come to me and say, well, how'd you raise money and what's venture debt mean and all that. And so I just did this startup bootcamp um, 
did it for, I think, three years. And it was a three-day thing over a semester. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And it was great. And we had great interaction with the, with the students that were there and um, got to make some great connections there. But it was, it was a really fulfilling um, thing that, that I've done in my life that I really come back to sometimes mentally and think maybe that's what I should do at some stage in my future career. Go back and, you know, give back through my experience. Oh, I could totally, totally see that. And now you mentioned the brandedness of Oh yeah. O. Wharton. Well, I so when I went to college, my undergrad, I went to the University of Missouri. And um hopefully my kids don't listen to this for a while. But anyway, I, I go there and my first day of class, I'm like, wait a minute, if you don't go to class, the professors don't really care. Um, and I can do whatever I want. And so I spent my entire freshman year just kind of mailing it in getting the minimum bar grades I needed because I really wanted to have a good time. And so, and, and I did, uh, mission accomplished. And um, when I graduated, after I graduated and spent some time in my 20s, I realized that I had really wasted an amazing opportunity. Um, and it's not about the grades you get, it's about what you get out of an opportunity. And the fact that I spent four years at a, you know, um, an amazing school and the most I could talk about was how much fun I had. I think that's a real miss. And it's, I, you know, I think you need to have fun in college. And I think it's important to socially expand your horizons and all that. But the fact that I left all that learning opportunity on the table, I always felt pretty bad about. And so when I thought about going my MBA program, I really wanted to be challenged. And uh, I really wanted to, that's why I wanted the pedigree. I wanted something where the professors take it very seriously that they're imparting their wisdom onto you. Um, and I just felt that, that was important. And then very bluntly, and this is going to sound a bit egotistical, you know, I think if you can get the higher, the better the pedigree you can get for something like that, just the better from a, from a career perspective. Um, although what I tell people is Wharton is the great or Stanford or Harvard, you know, MIT, they're great at opening doors, but you still, you you still have to walk through the door. Right. So, um, it's, 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 uh, it's been helpful from that perspective, but it's not like it's solved any problems for me. But that, those are really the fundamental reasons why I wanted to go to a, a, a top-tier program was the because um, I really wanted to push myself academically, and I certainly did. Wharton, was, that, was no, um, that was no pushover program. It was incredibly challenging. Um, but I also wanted to you know, come out with the right pedigree, uh, and that's been important in my career also. That's amazing. Were you now, were you and Carrie, Carrie were married? Did you have the kids? What was the time frame? The yeah. Time? So I got married in 02. So right about the time the dot-com bust happened, um, we got married. And uh, when I went to Wharton um, in my first year, she uh, gave birth to our first son, um, who's about to turn 17, which just blows my mind. <laughs> Um, and so he was born when we were, when I was at Wharton and then, uh, my second son was born, uh, two and a half years later when I was the CEO of my own startup. So, you know, not the, not the best timing in the world. Um, but you know what the timing, you can't, you can't try and time something like that. Um, and it's just, you know, you take it as it comes. And of course I wouldn't change anything for the world, but, uh, it was, um, definitely challenging to have children at those points in my career. Can you talk about juggling being the founder, CEO, husband, dad? Um, because I think that's a bit glossed over. We talk about women's struggles, and I'm just wondering how how that was for you and Carrie. I mean, I know she's like super rock star. Um, 
but was there anything you would have done differently? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I've talked about this before, and um, when, when I'm sorry, when I have talked about this before, I actually get, I've learned to stay away from the term balance because balance means one versus the other, and to me, you have a lot more than just two constituents. Um, you've got a lot of stakeholders in your life. And um, the way I thought about it was um, different points in your life, these different sets of stakeholders are going to take positions of prominence. And, you know, time is a finite resource and there's only so much of it in the day. And you're just going to have to figure out what's going what's to be sacrificed um, at that point in time so that you can really pay attention to whatever the whatever stakeholder cohort is in your position of prominence. I think the more important thing, and I learned, actually learned this at Wharton from one of my favorite professors, Stu Friedman, who Molly, I know I've introduced you to. Yeah, he's in um, show. <laughs> yeah, and he's done a lot of work on, on this. And when I talked to him about it and I took his class, he talked about the important piece of that was the dialogue that you have. So, you know, step one is saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up in this portion of my life for a while so I can focus on something else. But if you don't sit down and have an honest dialogue with whatever that portion of your life is, even if it's with yourself, then you're really going to fail. And that's where a lot of the stress comes, I think, from, with people is they don't have those conversations. And so I came home and, and I, when, I, when, I went, when I decided to go to the MBA program, my wife at the time was pregnant. And I said, look, this is going to take a lot of time and, and uh, I'm going to need your support on this. And she's like, okay, I get it. But of course, when the kid comes, it changes. It's almost like I said earlier that, you know, the best laid plan doesn't survive the first bullet. Yeah. Your best laid plans don't survive your first kid. You know, it's, it's, uh, it turns everything upside down. Um, but we just kept that honest dialogue open. And what I did was I also went to my boss at the time, um, uh, who you, Molly, you know very well, Mike Volpe. Mm-hmm. And Mike is on the board of Stanford Business School. So Mike is a huge fan of getting an MBA degree. And so I told Mike, I said, listen, um, I'm going to do my job for the next two years, but I'm not going to ask for promotions. I'm not going to ask for raises. I'm gonna, what I'm going to ask for is time and commitment to let me focus on my MBA. And he was 100% on board with that. And so I was able to kind of draw down the amount of energy I was going to put into my job um, so I could draw up the amount of energy I was going to put in my MBA program. And then with my personal life, my, I basically told my wife, I go, look, we have to take a big step back on vacations and on time that you and I are going to spend together um, because now we have to spend that time on our son and grow on growing family. Um, and that's just kind of the dialogue that I had. And then, you know, kind of kept that dialogue going to make sure that people were okay with it. So, you know, every three or four months kind of have a, you know, check in, like, is this going okay? And where are we falling down? Um and then, you know, be prepared for the answer because you're probably not going to get, no, everything's okay. You're going to get, okay, this is where I have a problem. And being, um, being able to talk about those things honestly and openly is super critical. Oh, kudos to you for having those conversations, for going there. I love the transparency. I always say transparency is your friend. And modeling that relationship with Volpe, who, of course, would um, be open to that. And I just want to encourage listeners that organizations, bosses, they want you to thrive, right? But they can't help if you don't let them know. And this is just a great example Sam, Sam has shared for how one can go about it. Um, I want to shift gears because this operating manual, I just love you to share the notion of it. I know you got it from someone else, but just help people um, know what that is and how it served you because I just think it's so genius. Yeah, this is actually something I just did uh, found out about like I think three, three and a half years ago. And I found it amazing. And what it is, is, and there's lots of, lots of um, 
examples. You can just Google operating manual or, or personal operating manual um, for a, a template that works for you. But my my boss, one of my bosses at Salesforce did it. And uh, I never even heard of this as a concept. Basically, what it is, is it's a document that you write and it's you give it to the people that are going to work with you, especially people that have never worked with you before. And it, it's pretty concise and it just lays out kind of what, how they can best get along with you. And so I write about things that annoy me. Um, I write about things that I'm motivated by, uh, things that I like to see motivated in others, um, how you best communicate with me, right? Everyone communicates differently. Do you want email? Do you want text messaging? Do you want to be hit up on Slack, right? Um, what level of detail do you like? Um, and so just kind of laying all that out concisely uh, and then delivering that to people so that when they look at it, especially when you take over a large organization and they don't know anything about this new leader they're getting, it's kind of daunting. But now they can look at this and they can understand how to best interoperate with me, but also personalizes and humanizes you a bit. Um, and I also talk about things in there that are kind of important um, that I've learned, you know, through last few years. And an example of this is um, because of my time in the military, I, I have what's called combat-induced hearing loss in my left ear. And what that means is that when I'm in, in any kind of crowded environment, I can't hear very well. And so, for the longest time, I wouldn't go to uh, happy hours at work. And Salesforce is a young company. They have a lot of happy hours. And I would show up, show my face, and leave like in 10 minutes. And I overheard someone after one in, a, um, in one of our cafes say, I wish Sam had stayed longer. I haven't got a chance to meet him yet. I just happened to be standing kind of behind them. And it hit me that it may not – I'm not getting the, um, the impact that I want out of this decision. So my intent is one thing and my impact is another. And what I realized was that they don't understand that I'm not, not showing up because I think I'm above them or anything like that. I just, I can't hear anybody and it's frustrating. Uh, and the last thing I want to be is frustrated in front of uh, people you work with. And so that's an example of something I wrote in my operating manual. So I literally write, um, please understand that if you ask me to attend some sort of social event, the odds are I won't go because this hearing loss doesn't allow me to, to hear you in a, in a, in a setting. Um, and now when people read that and they're like, oh, well, if Sam doesn't show up at a, here, at a happy hour, you know, now we know why. And so it's just things like that. Um, I have found it to be incredibly, uh, an incredible, incredibly compelling tool. Uh, I have shared it. I took over a new role at Salesforce in the middle of this pandemic where I've not physically been able to meet anybody. Um, and I, I brought a bit of a reputation with me because I've been at the company for a long time, but these people have never worked with me before. And so I shared this with them and the, the amount of feedback that I received was really compelling. Um, and I've actually shared it with people I don't work with. Uh, and it's kind of been, I just two weeks ago was telling somebody about this uh, when we were out playing golf and he asked me to look at it. So he read it while we were, you know, um, out on the course and he was kind of blown away by it, not because of me, but just the, the, the value you can get out of this tool. So it's been a really compelling thing and I've really enjoyed it. And I, I keep it up to date. I go in there every four or five months and make sure it's up to date and change things around. And um, it's been an amazing tool. Yeah, I love it. I'm going to read a couple of things from this. And, and this is really, folks, I talk about this on the show, about getting to know yourself for who you really are. In, or, in order to author something like this, you have to know who you are. And it really, it is amazing. So Sam's being humble here. It's When I went through, I mean, I've known you for a long time. I'm like, oh my God, I'm even more in awe of you by reading this because it's so 
well done. And there's one bullet here. I was born with a tremendous ability to read people. Then I became an intelligence counterterrorism officer in the U.S. Marine Corps, where this natural ability was sharpened into a high-functioning skill. This means I can smell bullshit from 50 feet. I mean, it's just like, game on, do not come to me, you know, with some BS kind of thing. It's not going to go well. And then this one I really love too, because I think the outer the outer surface of Sam can can potentially could potentially be a little daunting. I mean, you're physically imposing. You have a deep voice. He says, I am actually quite easy to talk to. Try it. So I just think I could imagine someone like, look at this guy. This guy is our new boss. I mean, it just, it's really fabulous, folks. So I really, really encourage folks to lean into it, if nothing else, for your own sake. And then if you have the, uh, the, the, the ability to share it, I think it just, it just, I think, sends a great message of open leadership, of comfortable yeah, with oneself. It, you know, the thing is, too, is uh, it took me six or seven tries to sit down and write that. And then one time I was flying back from New York. And, you know, that can be a six-hour flight, depending on winds. And I was going to, I had all the stuff I was going to do. And I thought, you know what? I'm not getting off this airplane until I write this thing. So I sat down and I, and I wrote it. It's, I don't know, a page and a half, two pages. And um, I must have rewritten it 15 times while I was on that aircraft. And by the time I landed, I was in a decent spot. But then I had a couple of people who I know who worked for me read it. And they said, you completely forgot about this. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think I got it to about 80% where it needed to be. And then I got input from folks and got it over the finish line. But it's, it's, you're right. You have to really know yourself. And when someone asks you a question, what really bothers you at work and you sit and have to write something that doesn't sound like you're complaining, you know, takes real introspection. Yeah. Yeah. And just so you know, you're at almost four pages. I mean, it's four pages. Oh, so just, well, there you go. It's good. It's good. And it's not, actually, I'm inspired by it. It's on my list and it's, but it is something that's going to take quite a few iterations for me to, to get going on. Um, okay. So I do, would you share a little bit, I, you know, Salesforce, just give us a little sense of what your role is now. Cause it is pretty unique. And I love how you have, created this amazing range, you know, public sector, private sector, and I think now with the social sector. So, love to hear about your current opportunity. Yeah. So, I, I, uh, I came here to do M&A and it was great. But when I came here, I told the guy who hired me, John Samorjai, who's a great guy. I, I said, John, I go, listen, um, I don't want to do this for a career. I want to come in. Uh, I'd never done cloud software before and that's where the world's going. This is going back seven years. And uh, so, I'll come in, I'll give you my all. But the trade-off is that in, you know, three-ish years, I want to be able to go do something else inside the company. And his credit, he said, if you give me three great years and find your successor, I'll be more than happy to support that. And so, um, did that for three years. Amazing, you know, about 22 companies. It was great. Um, and then I was thinking about what to do next. And then, as I said earlier, I don't spend a lot of time on this kind of stuff. And I ran into, who at the time was our co-CEO, a guy named Keith Block. And he goes, what are you up to? And I said, well, I was just talking to John about what I want to do next. And he's like, hey, I got a great job for you. You should go with the CEO of marketing. And I'm like, what the hell is a CEO of marketing? And he <laughs> said, well, um, you're going to go define it. But I put it this way. We spend a billion dollars on marketing and I'm not 100% sure where it all goes. I know it goes to good work, but I just don't fully understand it. Um, and uh, I want someone that I can put in there who's trusted by the sales organization to go help you know, take the marketing organization to the next level. Um, and so I did that for three years and it was an awesome run and Salesforce marketing is, is an amazing place. And I was inspired by all the people I worked with and, you know, certainly learned a lot from all of them. They, they helped teach me and bring me along that journey. And then last summer, it was almost the same kind of conversation. Um, I was speaking with one of our senior executives 
and uh, just kind of generally catching up right after COVID started. And um, he asked me what I wanted to go do next. And I said, I'm really not thinking yet about what I want to do next. I said, we've had three great years, every year better than the last. And my CMO and boss at the time, Stephanie Buscemi, who had a lot of respect for, she and I were really starting to um, run it, run at a really good speed um, with the organization. And I said, what are you thinking? And he said, look, we, we, uh, we acquired Salesforce.org, which for 18 years had been a separate legal entity. And the most simplest way to describe it was it was the foundation of Salesforce. So it, it granted um, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And it also provided free product to um, educational institutions and nonprofits around the world. And uh, you know, Salesforce.com acquired it. So it was an acquisition and the business uh, was doing well, but not doing as well as it could. It was going a little sideways. And, and he said, hey, we just want someone that understands M&A, um, but it has a passion for doing good um, to come in and help kind of get this thing back to the growth position it needs to get to in the leadership position it needs to get to in the market. And the reason he asked me was backing up a bit, uh, I was in one of our leadership development programs for executives here at Salesforce. And I spent a week with a nonprofit doing pro bono work in Detroit called Downtown Boxing Gym. It's an at-risk youth program. And I was so compelled by my week there that I sent a note to Mark Benioff, our founder and CEO, along with some other executives. And I said, we need to do more. And I don't mean just, you know, volunteering to go paint, paint hallways and, um, you know, package, uh, goods for you know school back, backpacks and all kind of thing. That's, that's important work, but I think as an executive with tenure, there's a lot more you can provide in terms of brain power. And um, you know, we had a con- then had a conversation about that and how Salesforce executives should be donating a lot of their time and helping these nonprofits really think through you know, their compelling um, business problems and how they should think about strategizing for growth. And because of that dialogue, when the .org opportunity came along, uh, Brett Taylor, our CEO, just thought of me and he said, well, Sam Allen, someone that you know, has done M&A, is a trusted person inside of .com who could really help be a guide for .org as a new operating unit inside of Salesforce. And so he called me up, talked to me about it. And I said, you know, I don't think I would leave my current role for anything else except maybe this, because the opportunity to come and directly impact uh, 50,000 nonprofits across the globe is probably the best work I could do in my life. And so, again, it was a 24-hour, sounds good to me, you know, uh, it's called my boss, Stephanie, and talked to her about it. And she said, I don't think I could stand in your way. Um, and then spent, you know, a day speaking with some of the folks at .org. And then by the end of that second day, I was all in. So, um, it's just been a tremendous last almost full year. Um, Salesforce.org is uh, uh, very much about um, visually transforming these nonprofits and, and educational institutions across the world. We donate about one point, we're going to donate about $1.8 billion in product this year. Um, and to kind of put that in perspective, donate isn't there even the right word because this is product that we still have to develop, you know, quote unquote, sell and then support like we would any other product. And so it's a huge effort. It's a one to do 1.8 billion. And then on top of that, we also obviously are an operating going concern and we sell uh, software uh, and services to those same institutions. We do it at a discount, but we do that as well. 
And so all in, it's a multi-billion dollar business unit for Salesforce that's growing at, you know, north of 20%. So it's, it's a really compelling business model. It is an opportunity to really have real impact in the world. And I tell some of my compatriots um, on the dot-com side, I said, you know, it's great uh, to sell software um, to a customer like Bank of America or Coca-Cola. That's amazing. Um, but when you sell software and help the United Way transform their business or the World Health Organization or the Boys and Girls Club of America, there's just an extra um, motivation there to see the success of those organizations. And it's just been an incredibly, incredibly compelling and fulfilling um, turn that my career has taken. Ah, so thrilled for you, proud of you. And I want listeners to know that you can, you, know, you put it out there in the universe and things that need to happen, happen. So I just, Salesforce is lucky. You're lucky. It's just so awesome. You get to impact the world this way. Oh, we could keep going. Okay. I'm going to switch gears because we are on Say It Skillfully, Sam. So uh, I imagine there might be some sort of tough conversation <laughs> for you that uh, perhaps we could talk through for listeners. Yeah. Um, there's actually, there's actually a couple, um, I'm going to actually throw you a curveball, Molly, and give you a different scenario than we talked about earlier. But uh, I have a couple of really strong young leaders um, who I can see, uh, I can see the um, value that they provide and I can see their upside um, and they can't see it themselves. And because of what you earlier talked about my demeanor and my reputation and all that, it's sometimes I, and I, I am, I never shy away from giving feedback to people, but what I've realized is that when you combine my directness with my demeanor, sometimes it lands a little heavy um, and doesn't land with the level of empathy that it needs to, even though I'm trying to be empathetic. And so what I'm struggling with is how I give this feedback that I think these few folks really need to have uh, in a way that lands really well and is seen as constructive, 100% constructive and not punitive. Um, and because uh, I've dropped a couple of hints here and there with a couple of these people and I could tell by their reaction, like, oh, Sam thinks I'm not doing a good job. And that's not remotely the case. It's, I look, I'm, I am, and I even told this one um, woman who works for me uh, or has worked for me, who I think is amazing, and that who I may one day work for, that I said, look, you can't, please don't take that feedback as negative. It's, it's I'm only giving this to you because I want you to get better because I can see your potential. But that's kind of, you know, something I do struggle with is is delivering fearless feedback, and but in a way that's super constructive. Um, and that's delivered with a level of empathy that's needed so that the person really hears what they're being told without wrapping some fear around it. Yeah. Hey, I love it. I love it. And this one, I think listeners can all relate to. So first and foremost starts with you. And I might consider when the boys were young, the nurturing dad, the you can do it, the love, the intimacy, that energy, you have that energy and give yourself permission to share a dose of it at work. Okay. And mm -hmm. I know, I know he's in there. So you just, you bring that on like when the kids were little and you, you love them to death. And that's that, that, that feeling of really open heart. And I would add the other meta skill or energy is this notion of partnership of teammate. And I'm with, I'm in there with you. 
And so I think the opportunity is first the acknowledgement, the positivity. Susan, like, I just want to say, I, I observed this. This was so amazing. You're rocking it. My job, and I see so much upside, is for you to take it to the moon. So I want you to know that I've been keeping an eye out for things that I think are going to help you be even better. Pause. Okay, so this is this energy, and you're smiling, and you're so positive. You're a coach, like we're about to win the championship. Type hmm. of feeling, okay. Yep. And then, do you remember? Actually, you may want to go through a situation. You know, he said, when when such and such happened, do you remember? Yes. Okay. Do you remember what you said? Yes. And so, more questions. How do you think that landed for the other person? Might be something. How do you think? How do? You, how? What do you think I might have been thinking? And the the opportunity is, and I'm just helping you, Susan, to think about what might be going on for other people so that you're, you're able to think about that. So again, you're setting it up, you're helping this person get set outside of their head, or if they're doing something, hey, what were you trying to accomplish? So just helping them unpack what they were doing, and they will tend to solve it. And so to the extent that you've got, oh, so what I'm seeing you say is that what you'd love is to do X. And she's like, oh yeah, great. So this notion of partnering, of iterating back and forth so that you get there together versus, well, let me tell you, let me sit down and tell you what I saw, blah, 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 right? That tends to sound heavy, even though it might be very accurate and you're done in a very light way. So let me pause there. How's that landing for you? Uh, I think that sounds really good. I, I do like the partnering kind of, because it does, it does, it does tend to, um, especially when you have a lot of people, you know, we've got hundreds of people that want your time as a leader and you want to give it to them. But it also means you tend to default to um, transactional. Um, and so I think, you know, what you're saying too, that resonates with me is being present, you know, in the conversation and not just being, okay, here's what I observed. Um, go fix this and you'll be better off. Yeah, and <laughs> like it doesn't how have, sometimes yeah. I deliver it, you know, yeah. it doesn't have to take a long time, but it's that pause and it's the lightness in the face and that it's the, and people know like you're cheering, you're cheering. I know you, you're cheering for people. And so they just need to know that you're cheering for them. And then the checkpoint, I've said a lot, let me just pause. What are you hearing? Right. Right. And I can say this, I can say, you know, I love you. Right. So there's gotta be ways that you can kind of just reinforce for them that you're there for them. So in, in a Sam way, but you know, I'd say, you know, I love you. Right. Like, yeah, I do. Okay, great. Cause that's why I'm here. And it would not be doing my job. If I were not creating space for do for you to do your best work, and oh by the way, if you bumble a little bit, that's part of growing. Normalize. If they did something, lots of times people want to like you know be punitive on themselves. Be like, wait a second, no, don't be your worst enemy. Please be your best friend, like I'm trying to do, and together we're going to win. Yep. Awesome. Okay, let's um let me go back here. If you were to look back, um, any regrets or do overs you might like to share. Well, I refer to the one about my undergraduate experience that that still, you know, that yep. still resonates with me, even though I went back and feel like I quote unquote made up for it a bit with my MBA. I, I think spending the, and just thinking that and, and blowing it out a little bit, you know, taking advantage of every opportunity. And there are certainly plenty of times where um, I'm human, like everybody else, uh, where there's been opportunity laying before me and I just didn't take it for whatever reason. I was too tired. I was too busy. Um, and I don't, it doesn't have to be work either. It can be with, if, with, with your family. Right. Um, one thing that I, one thing that I did do as a father is cause my dad wasn't there for me that way. It was, I, I promised myself anytime one of my sons asked me to play with them, I will never say no. 
And when it was, they were little, it was shoots and ladders and they got older, it was throwing the ball and then it became the Xbox. And now it's, you know, throwing the football outside. Like I, I don't ever say no to my kids when they, when they ask me to do something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a lesson learned, you know, from making those mistakes in my past. So I think just the, the, the reaction writ large is there's huge price to pay for opportunity costs sometimes. So, you know, think through, think through something before you decide not to follow up on an opportunity. Nice. Nice. Sam, what's honor mean to you? Uh, honor to me is almost synonymous with integrity. Um, and integrity is being true to yourself, uh, true to those around you and, and honestly keeping your word. Um, going back to my user manual, one thing I said in there, I said, you can survive any mistake with me other than lying. And um, everybody makes mistakes and we push ourselves and we stumble and I do too. Um, but when you, when you lie, it's just not, not good. Um, and so to me, honor is all about keeping your word and, keeping your faith with those around you in whatever way you want to find faith and um, just being true to yourself as well. Uh, that's what honor means to me. Nice. One growth area you're working on. Uh, I am trying to become expert on um, the products that we have in market. Um, I need to uh, get more expert at that that's, that's very tactical. Um, I think something that is, is less tactical is, you know, kind of back to my question earlier is how do I, even after 25 years, how do I continue to build empathy in, uh, in my approach? And that's something I've constantly battled with. Um, uh, and I just need to continue to kind of push that rock up the hill. That's great. And I'm going to encourage you to say you are empathetic now. You used to be lacking perhaps in coming across empathetically, but now you are empathetic, Sam. Got it. Um, your biggest compliment someone's given you. I think so. A few years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who I've known for about 20 years. And um, he said, Hey, we were talking about, he was facing a career decision and he was asking my advice. And uh, so we were kind of had a conversation back and forth. And I was giving him my opinion about things. And he said, You know, you told me back in uh, one thing you told me back in 2002 was yada, yada, yada. And I stopped walking because we were playing golf. And I stopped walking and I looked over at him and I said, You remember that? And he said, Yeah, I remember it vividly. I don't remember what the hell he's even talking about, but the fact that someone took so much value in advice that I had given him when I didn't really know much either was in, in essence, probably the best compliment I ever had because it meant that my words carried a lot of weight and, um, and then the, and the person followed the advice and they said the advice worked really well for them. So I think that's probably, probably the best compliment I've ever had. That's amazing. Um, you shared a lot. Is listening to yourself go through your journey a top takeaway from our time today? Yeah, I, you know, I'm sorry. You say tough or top? No, a top, top takeaway. Top. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't dwell a lot on my journey um, or why I got where I where I got where I am. And again, like I said earlier, I, I just I'm I go native all the time, and for me, it's just about constantly moving forward um, and. So I don't, I don't do that a lot. And, you know, you sent me that document, you know, kind of a pre-read about what we're going to generally talk about. Uh, it was very general, just kind of some, some, some um, you know, trends or whatever. And I did have to stop and think for a moment. And I, I don't really do that very often. And I don't do it enough. And I think it's something we could all do is really sit and reflect here and there. And I told you, Molly, in an earlier conversation, I started doing some meditation. And um, 
which I highly recommend for folks. And if I can do it, anybody can. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the meditation has been good and just kind of dropping to the moment and being present. And that's something I think we could all benefit from. Yeah, you have been an absolute, absolute, absolute saint. I uh, am so smiley about this. You've been generous in sharing the ups and the downs, being real as I expected, um, your centeredness, your unflappability. Uh, really inspires me and I'm sure listeners uh, to grow in many, many ways. So Sam, I really thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me. And I really thank you for being part of the solution. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This was great. Um, I'm happy to, always happy to have a dialogue and if I can be helpful to people, then that's a great day. Yeah, I appreciate you. You take good care. You know how to reach me. You bet. Anytime. Thanks, Molly. Okay. Uh, My thought for the week is inspired by Sam. It's his three values that guide him, integrity, courage, and dependability. And that's a wrap. My thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Sam's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 